I don't know about you, but I just want to keep on singing. That was great. I'm, I'm so grateful for our music team and the way they lead us in worship and praise to our God each week. You know, music is something that's, that's basically ingrained in us as humans. And since our passage today is actually a song, I thought it might be interesting to see what some other people have said about music through time. Music does a lot of things for a lot of people. It's transporting for sure. It can take you right back, years back, to the very moment certain things happened in your life. It's uplifting. It's encouraging. It's strengthening. Aretha Franklin said that. Words make you think. Music makes you feel. A song makes you feel a thought. Yip Harburg. Thomas Carlyle said this, music is well said to be the speech of angels. In fact, nothing among the utterances allowed to man is felt to be so divine. It brings us near to the infinite. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said, music is the universal language of mankind. My heart, which is so full to overflowing, has often been solaced and refreshed by music when sick and weary. Martin Luther. Music can name the unnameable and communicate the unknowable. Leonard Bernstein. Music expresses that which cannot be put into words and that which cannot remain silent. Victor Hugo. And Johann Sebastian Bach, music is an agreeable harmony for the honor of God and the permissible delights of the soul. We are built to be moved by music, by song. It's in the fabric of our being. And this is exactly how God made us. And he's given some of us the ability to create music and to write songs. But he's given to all of us the ability to enjoy music and to enjoy singing. As we get ready to open God's word today, let's ask him to lead us. Join me in prayer. Oh, our great and mighty God, what a privilege it is for us to sing your praises, to worship you. Would you come now and lead us into truth through your word? Oh, Lord, we are grateful for your word, for it is life itself to us. Open our minds and our hearts that we might see you clearly and that we might hear and understand what you have for us today. Edify and encourage us, Lord, so that we might know you for who you are, so that we might serve you more fully. O oh Lord, may the victory song of Moses and the Israelites, may it be our song too. And may it all be to the honor and glory of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, if you were able to join us last week, then you'll remember that Yahweh has just saved the people of Israel from certain annihilation 
by the army of Pharaoh. Not only has he saved them by parting the sea and having the Israelites pass through on dry land, but he has destroyed Pharaoh's army by closing those same waters on that army and drowning them. What we have in chapter, here in chapter 15 is the response of Moses and Israel to what Yahweh has done. It's a song about God and what he's done, and it's also a song that is sung to God. So if you haven't already, would you turn in, in your Bible to Exodus chapter 15. Now, your Bible may have a heading here called The Song of Moses, or maybe it says The Song of Moses and Miriam, or The Song of Moses and Israel, or maybe it says The Song of the Sea. But there's another passage that's called the Song of Moses, and that's in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And so if you're trying to look things up on the internet, that may cause some confusion. So just share that with you for your information. So songs can be one of the highest forms or the highest expressions of praise and worship. And we have a lot of examples in scripture. Let me give you just a few. In Job chapter 38, verse 7, we find that there was singing at creation. The morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. In Judges chapter 5, um, Deborah and Barak shouted for joy um, at the defeat of Jabin and Sisera. They sang a song, and we see this over and over um, when God saves his people. How about David? When he was a shepherd boy, David praised God. He sang songs. When he was on the run from Saul, he sang songs. When he was king of Israel, he sang songs. Um, Psalm 40 is a good example. Uh, David describes how God has lifted him out of the pit and set his feet on the solid rock. And this caused David to proclaim, he has put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Or how about the Israelites singing as they returned from exile, just as Isaiah had foretold. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. And then there's the birth of Jesus. All the angels sang for joy. Others joined in. Others like Mary and Zechariah and Simeon. And then there's the church. You know, we sing. We sing praises to God for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's been going on since the first century church. Paul, writing to the Colossians, said this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And we know that these songs of praise will continue into the future. In Revelation 15, we read about how those who have been victorious over the beast sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. 
These two songs celebrate two great redemptive events, God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt at the Red Sea and God's deliverance of sinners from their sin through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Now, did you catch the common thread in all of those? God does something great, and the response is a song of praise. And that's the first point that we need to see today. Whenever God does something great, he deserves to be praised. So let's examine this song of Moses. Would you follow along as we read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 15? Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The, depths, the deeps covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The waters were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. 
it's important that we note this song was for everyone. Did you catch it? In verse 1, we had Moses and the sons of Israel. Um, they were singing. And then in verse 20, we have Miriam and the women singing. This was probably some kind of antiphonal arrangement in which the, the men and women alternately um, sang responsively. And rabbinical tradition even indicates that children had a part in this song. But this is not just a song for Old Testament Israel. No, this is a song for all the people of God throughout redemptive history. Now, the reason Moses' song is, is appropriate for, uh, and fitting for all of redemptive history is because God has triumphed gloriously over all his enemies. Not only Pharaoh and his armies, but Satan and all his destructive weapons, including death. Verse 18 sounds the note of praise for God's people throughout all ages. The Lord will reign forever and ever. We hear this confident refrain over and over throughout scripture. Again, turning to Revelation we find the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That's chapter 11, verse 15. Now, the first 12 verses of our passage tell us what God has done. In dramatic, graphic, poetic strokes, the events which just occurred at the Red Sea are described how Yahweh exercised his sovereign control over nature to pile up the waters and dry the seabed so his people could walk uh, safely across. And then by his mighty hand, he crushed Pharaoh's army, drowning them in the same waters that his people had just passed through. The mighty Pharaoh's army, the greatest on earth, could not stand against Yahweh. Did you catch Pharaoh's empty boast in verse 9? In just one verse, he manages to refer to himself six times. He was boastful, he was proud, and he was rash. And he was completely humbled by Yahweh. No wonder Moses and the people proclaimed that Yahweh had become their salvation. Yahweh has defeated the enemy. He's done this on his own and by his own mighty power. Yahweh has redeemed his people. They're slaves in Egypt no more. Now, does this scenario sound a little familiar to you personally? If you're a Christian, it should. Jesus is your salvation. He has defeated your enemy. Jesus has redeemed you. And we see this same formula in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. God does the work, and then he extends saving grace to his people. God did something great, and his people praised him. What has God done for you that you should be praising him for? Did something come to your mind? Are you singing a song of praise to him? If you aren't, why not? Now, if nothing came to mind, 
then I would suggest you have an opportunity to, uh, to do some inner reflection, to, to do some self-examination. Let God remind you of all that he has done for you. He will do that. And then you too can sing a song of praise to your God. Well, my dad um, used to say things like, always do your best because that's who you want to be. Or, or, or things like, keep your word. That shows who you are. What he was trying to tell me is this. What you do reveals your character. And it turns out that's also true for God. And that brings us to our second point. God's work always reveals something of his character. Now, if we continue with that thought, it's not surprising then that Moses praised Yahweh for many of his divine attributes in this psalm. And we're going to look at some of those attributes, starting with God's eternalness. Moses invoked the name Yahweh a number of times, often, in this psalm. And by doing so, Moses is calling attention to God's eternalness. You see, Yahweh is self-existent. He's immutable, unchangeable. And to Moses and the Israelites, he's the same one who made the covenant with Abraham. He's the same one who appeared to Moses at the burning bush. He's the same one who devastated Egypt with the plagues. And he's the same one who saved Israel from Pharaoh's army. He's the one who promises to be their God forever. For the Israelites, considering the eternalness of Yahweh, meant that they could absolutely rely on Yahweh. He was going to be with them always. Now, when we consider the eternalness of God, it means we can totally rely on him, for he will always be with us. In verse 6, Moses calls attention to God's power. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Yahweh is indeed omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Nothing and no one can stand against him. He demonstrated that with quite a bit of style at the Red Sea. What else can the Israelites do but praise him? This demonstration of his power showed the people that God is in control of the nations. God controlled Egypt from the time they were at the height of their power until they were ultimately humiliated and defeated. God controlled Israel when they were in the depths of slavery all the way to the pinnacle of freedom. By his power, God is in control. Is God the same today? Well, yes, he is. And that fact must inform and shape our worldview and our interpretation of current events. If we continue on in verse 6, we find Moses saying, 
Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy, and in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. Burning anger? Some translations say fury? Wrath? We don't want to think about God burning with anger, do we? Let alone praise him for it. But we should. We need to be sure, though, that we understand his wrath properly. The holiness of God makes it impossible for him to tolerate sin. So in his holy wrath, he executes justice perfectly. And that's why we can praise him for his wrath, because it's perfect. Earlier, Moses said, the Lord is a man of war. And that war that Yahweh waged was a holy war. It was completely justified. This war against Egypt was holy in a way that no human war could ever be. And that's really important for us to understand. Human war cannot be holy. It can't be holy because we're humans and we are not holy. Only God is holy and only he can wage a holy war. And because he is holy, he does not sin in his anger. The difference between God's wrath, his, his burning anger, and our human anger is that God's anger is always, always righteous. Mariano de Ganji explains it this way. This wrath of God is not a vehement, irrational, vindictive, arbitrary, capricious venting of some supernatural spleen. It is the manifestation of the repugnance of a holy God against all who defile, disrupt, and destroy the world that he has made. What had Pharaoh and the Egyptians done? They defiled and disrupted and they attempted to destroy God's handiwork, his chosen people. And we don't really need a reminder of the suffering Egypt inflicted on the Hebrews, but Moses gives us one anyway. It's easy to miss because in, in the NAS, the word is translated here in verse 7 as chaff. But it's the same word we saw in chapter 5 that's translated stubble. Remember, Pharaoh made the Hebrews gather stubble to make bricks. He added greatly to their, their already heavy burden. And using the same word here as a reminder that Yahweh gave the Egyptians exactly what they deserved. God's wrath is always just. Always has been, always will be. And that's why we should praise him. If we skip down to verse 11... We find, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Moses praises Yahweh because of his supremacy, because he is superior not only to all of his enemies, but to the gods of his enemies as well. And then Moses kind of gets on a roll. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? God is truly unique, absolutely pure, completely set apart from any and all. 
glorious deeds? You want to talk about glorious deeds? All the wondrous events of the Exodus demonstrate the awesomeness of God. All these prove the supremacy of our God and call for us to praise him, just as these moved Moses and the people of Israel to praise him all those years ago. The last attribute we'll look at is God's steadfast love or loving kindness. Look at verse 13. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. I like the ESV rendering of steadfast love here. It gives us an indication of God's immeasurable loyalty and his faithfulness to keep his promises. Love motivates God to act. That's been clear throughout our study of Exodus. There's another subtle thing here, though, and it is oh so sweet. In his loving kindness, in his steadfast love, God leads his people, those he has redeemed. God didn't just free the people and say, okay, you're on your own. <clears throat> you know, good luck, have a safe journey. No. Yahweh led his people out of Egypt and he will lead them into the land that he has promised. In his steadfast love, God later declares to the Israelites, the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. We find that in Deuteronomy chapter 31. But you know what? That same promise shows up again in Hebrews 13:5, For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And guess what? That promise wasn't given to the Hebrews. That promise is given to us. God guides his people. We don't have time to go into all that that means. For now, trust that this eternal, all-powerful, holy warrior, this supreme God loves you. And he will never desert you or forsake you, and he will always lead you. Sing his praises for what he has done. Sing his praises for who he has revealed himself to be. I think we see here that Israel is getting to know their God. They're getting to know Yahweh. So let's take just a minute to think about the why and the how of getting to know God. Remember, Israel was in trouble. They, they were slaves. They were experiencing hardship and suffering, and they cried out to God. It was in and through these trials and tribulations that they saw God work, that they got to see God reveal himself to them. We, we could even say that Israel came to know God more intimately and more fully in the midst of the trials that God led them through. Now, the same principle is taught in the New Testament, and it applies to us as well. Consider Romans chapter 5, <clears throat> verses 2 through 5. Let me read that. We also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us 
because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Here Paul is teaching us that the joy of the Christian remains, it even grows in the midst of trials and tribulation. The more difficult things become, the more our faith is put to the test, the more, <clears throat> the more our faith is proved to be legitimate and to be living, then the more hope we have for the future. And the future is what the second half of this song is about. So let's look at our third point, what this foretells about the future. Well, what does this foretell about the future? Well, when we see what God has done, when we see God revealed for who he is, then we, like Moses, can look confidently to the future. And we see in the future victory. Now, the victory over the Egyptians is God's assurance of victory yet to come. If we look at verses 14, 15, and 16, we see righteous, divine judgment that's going to come to Philistia, to Edom, to Moab, and to all of Canaan, just as it did on Egypt. These enemies of God and Israel will be filled with fear and dread. And if we look at Numbers chapter 22, Joshua chapter 2, we see that fulfilled perfectly. This prophecy is being fulfilled through victory in the land of Canaan. And what is the land of Canaan? It's the promised land. Hmm, promised land. Think back to Exodus chapter 6. Back when things looked the absolute worst for the Hebrews, Pharaoh had just said, you know, go gather your own straw for making bricks. But you better make your quota. You better keep making all those bricks. Well, what did God say to Moses? God said, Moses, say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from the, under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. What we see is that God is faithful to keep every promise he makes. We also see that God has a place for his people, and he will guide them to it. And not only is there a place for his people, there's an inheritance for them. And on top of that, they will dwell with him forever. For the Israelites, there was a, a partial earthly fulfillment of this prophecy as they were brought into the land of Canaan, as they were brought to Jerusalem, as they saw Mount Zion, where the temple one day would reside. We too, we too have an inheritance in Yahweh. 
we too will dwell with him in the new Jerusalem where all believers of all ages will live forever with our God. Are you looking confidently to the future or do worry and doubt cloud your horizon? Rest assured, God has a place for you. He has an inheritance for you and he will guide you there in love by his strong and mighty hand. Well, we've seen that Moses and all the people sang this song. It, it was a corporate act of worship for sure. And here we come to our last point, and it's, it's not in your bulletin, so you get to add this one. It's corporate, but first and foremost, it's personal. It's corporate, but first and foremost, it's personal. If we go back to the beginning of the song, when we consider the attributes of God and all these incredible acts that he performed, it's easy for us to kind of take God in an abstract, impersonal way. I mean, he's just so different from us. He's so perfect. We can become, you know, clinical in our considerations. We can be analytical in our analysis. But God is not some philosophical proposition. He is a personal, relational being. And Moses understood this. So he not only wrote this song about God, he sang it to God. And until we do this, we aren't really worshiping. Tim Keller writes, when we praise God, we are not discussing our enjoyment of God, but the praising is the consummation and the completion of our worship as we glorify God. You see, we can't properly worship God unless we have a personal relationship with him. He must be my God, and I must be his child. Moses had a personal relationship with God, and that's why he could say, The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will extol him. This song this song, make no mistake, it's all about God. It's not about Moses. But look at all those personal pronouns. Moses couldn't help but cry out, this is my God. This is the one who has saved me. My faith is in him alone. He is my strength and my song. Isaiah sang the same tune. Isaiah said, the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. For the Christian today, for us, Jesus Christ is our strength. He is our song. He is our salvation. And if you don't know this in a personal way, then I invite you to simply come and ask to know him. He will not disappoint. It's corporate. We all sing together, praising our God. And that is a beautiful thing, just as we experienced this morning. We sing, though, 
Because it's personal. He is my God. And he has become my salvation. Now, if you can read this song of praise, if you can consider it and really think about it and not come away saying, what an amazing God, then you better check your pulse. You might be dead. In this short little song, we find a God who is eternal, all-powerful, holy, just, supreme, faithful, and loving. God is revealing himself to the world in general and to his people specifically. And what has he shown himself to be? Well, nothing short of exactly the kind of God his people needed. The question you need to ask yourself is this. What kind of God do you need? I, I mean, really, really need. I'm convinced that the kind of God that we need right now today is exactly the God Moses sang praises about and sang praises to. We need a God who is eternal, the kind who will always be there with us. We need a God who not only has the desire to save us, but has the power to save us, to save us from any enemy that confronts us and to save us from ourselves from our own sin. We need a God of wrath who will see to it that true justice prevails. And we need a God of steadfast love, one who will guide us to our inheritance in him and with whom we can spend eternity. In Yahweh, we have such a God, the one God who is everything anyone could ever need. Sing the victory song. Sing praise to the Lord Almighty. Would you stand and let's pray. Oh Lord, you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, even though we can't possibly comprehend all that you are. What we can understand, Lord, gives us no option but to join the chorus of believers down through the ages singing praises to your great name. We sing the song of Moses, Lord, who was the servant of God. And we, we sing the song of the Lamb, the one offered to redeem us and, and cover our sin. Oh, Lord, we are blessed to have these songs. For too often, your awesomeness just leaves us speechless. Lord, I would ask that these words of yours would encourage us to look confidently to the future. Lord, I ask, too, that as we see you clearly for who you are, that we would be emboldened to live for you more fully today and for each tomorrow that you choose to give us. Great is our God and greatly to be praised, and may it be so forever. Amen.